Good morning and welcome. It's a, uh, a blessing to gather together on the Lord's Day. Uh, a few announcements for you. Um, you can see in your announcement bulletin that uh, we have the Samaritan's Purse shoebox program wrapping up this evening um, after the evening worship service. Uh, everyone's invited to gather in the fellowship room um, to pack boxes. So if you're able to stick around for that, you're certainly welcome and encouraged. Um, in addition, the lost and found is sort of overflowing. So um, you might want to check that over by the uh, mailboxes and see if anything of yours has migrated there. Um, and please put on your, your calendar, Thanksgiving Day morning service at uh, 9.30 on Thanksgiving morning. Uh, we'd certainly love to have you join us for that. Um, Pre-profession class this evening. Just as a reminder, um, we'll be after the evening service today in the pastor's study. Um, this week, there will be no office hours on Wednesday. I'm planning on having normal office hours Monday and, and Friday. And if you need anything, certainly call too. Um, and then finally, if you ordered uh, pies from the Girls of Grace and have not gotten them yet, you can pick them up today in the, uh, in the church kitchen. Um, if you have any questions, see Karen Benjamin. That aside, the reason we're here and really the high point of our week and of our service to the Lord is the opportunity to worship. That we might do so in a way that is honoring to God and without distraction. Let us join our hearts together and ask Him in a moment of silent prayer to bless our time together. And then we'll conclude by praying together. Let's pray. Father, you have called us and we are yours. We pray that you would bless our time here before you this morning and also this evening. That you would cause everything that is said to uh, reflect your truth. That you would cause our hearts, having received the knowledge of the truth, to overflow both in faith and in gratitude. And We pray, Father, that you would thus not only glorify your name, but refresh and prepare your people for the week ahead. In Jesus' name we pray it, amen. Let's stand together. <clears throat> the Lord calls us to worship this morning with these words from Psalm 72. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be His glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with His glory, amen and amen. Congregation of our Lord Jesus, from where does your help come? Our help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Hear now his greeting. Grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's sing praise together to the Lord from number 283 in your Psalter hymnal. 283 will sing stanzas 1, 2, 3, and 10.
we know that God and God alone is truly good and righteous and holy and just. Jesus teaches us that both the law and the prophets can be summarized with two commands. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And yet, though there are only two commands, we find ourselves constantly falling short. How then can we dare to enter the presence of our holy God? Well, Jesus tells us in Matthew 7, he says, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. Now the location of that narrow way is very clear. Jesus said in John 14, verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. It's only by faith in Christ that we can be reconciled to God. And yet Jesus tells us also, if you have faith in Him, that's going to reveal itself. Because our faith is not going to be just something we say just to jump through a hoop. It's going to be something that the Holy Spirit has created in us as He begins transforming us into His beloved children. And so Jesus tells us, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Now that's true of false prophets. It's also true of false disciples. We can tell them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Because you see, the confession of their lives as they worked lawlessness, as they did that which God forbade and did not do that which God commanded, demonstrated that the words of their mouths were a lie. Now, the Lord nowhere tells us that our works are worthy of anything. To the contrary, He says, recognize that if you've done everything right, you're still just a servant of the Lord doing what you've been commanded to do, what you've been equipped to do. But though we don't yet serve Him perfectly, we do begin to demonstrate our faith in our lives. And that can only be the work of God the Holy Spirit. And so if we would be saved, we must trust in and confess the Lord. And we must ask for Him to be at work within us, demonstrating that confession in the changes He makes in us. That we might utter that prayer and make that confession. 
Let us sing together. We're going to sing a portion of Psalm 119, which you can find in selection 257 from your Psalter hymnal. This is the very end of Psalm 119, and we'll sing all four stanzas as our confession. Before we turn to Christ, we're enslaved. Enslaved to sin and to death and to the fear of death, the fear of judgment. But in turning to Christ, in turning us to Christ, the Lord delivers us from our slavery, just as truly as He delivered Israel of old from Egypt's slavery. And so to us, He brings the commandment that we demonstrate our faith, that we live a life that shows our gratitude to God. And so in Deuteronomy 5, he tells us, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and who keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. 
But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you nor your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, his male servant or his female servant, his ox, his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Because in these ways, we show that we love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul, mind and strength, and that we love our neighbor as ourselves. We need to ask the Lord for that, for the ability to embrace uh, that demonstration of faith. And we need to ask for His mercy upon all of His people. Um, we should be uh, in prayer for our council and consistory, which are meeting on Monday. Uh, this past week we prayed, or we, we celebrated our veterans. We should be praying for them. Many of them suffer deeply um, wounds that, that aren't of flesh and blood, uh, which they sustained protecting our freedoms. We should pray for them. We should pray for the many folks who are in need in our congregation and among our extended families, and we should rejoice and pray for blessing upon Emily and Matthew, who are now uh, united as one before the Lord. Um, so we, uh, we need to pray together. Let's do that. O oh Lord, our Heavenly Father, you have blessed us beyond all measure. For we deserved your wrath. We deserved the alienation from you that our sins would have worked. But you have treated us with grace and with mercy. By sending your son to die for the sins of your people. And by drawing us to embrace Him through the work of Your Holy Spirit. Father, we thank You for that. And we pray that You would work in the hearts of any among us who have not turned to Christ. That they might know the comfort and the joy of having their sins forgiven and being reconciled to You. And Father, we pray that You would so fill us with gratitude and with a recognition of the great price that Christ has paid. And that you, would, that you would give us the desire to show you glory and honor. That you would cause us day by day to turn aside from our sins. And to take up those commands which allow us to show our love for you and our love for our neighbor. Lord, only you can work this within us. But we know that you can. And we pray that you would by your power and your grace. And we pray, Father, that you would bless the members among us who have been struggling in various ways, 
We pray for uh, Dale as he continues recovering from uh, shoulder replacement surgery and, and Carol also as she deals with some health struggles. Lord, we pray that you would bless them well and powerfully. We pray for uh, continued healing for Sherry's eye, um, that you would strengthen and, and bless her in that for um, Dan as he undergoes radiation treatments for his cancer, uh, for Keith and Lori dealing with uh, effects of dementia and Parkinson's, for Joel undergoing treatment for his leukemia, and, and for others, Lord. You know the physical ailments among us. You know those who are wrestling with depression or anxiety or strife within their families. We pray for those who are uh, pregnant and expecting children, Father. We pray for our um, loved ones who are dealing with health issues. We think of, of uh, Jim Walthorn dealing with a recurrence of his cancer. Beth's mother, Cheryl, is uh, she is in hospice care and, and growing weaker. For Larry's son, Dan, dealing with uh, heart issues. Judy's uh, sister, Marcia, and Travis's cousin, Nick, and others, Lord. Lord, we lay them all before you, confessing that you are the great physician and that you have the sovereign ability that no earthly physician possesses to use our weakness to strengthen us, to use our struggles and our trials to draw us closer to you and to fit us for eternal life as your sons and daughters. Father, we thank you for that and we pray that you would, would give us eyes to see and hearts to believe that that is what you're doing within us. Equipping us for a life of service toward you eternally. Father, we thank you and we praise you that Matthew and Emily could take their vows yesterday and become one before you. We pray that you would bless them richly in their life together. That you would make them fruitful for your kingdom. And we pray, Father, also for those others in our midst who are preparing for marriage, that you would equip them well so that when that day dawns, they would be able to say, I do, with the greatest confidence, knowing that their strength and their unity are founded in you. Father, we thank you for this church and for the blessing we derive from being part of the body of Christ. Father, continue to strengthen and preserve this communion of the saints. Keep us united around the gospel, building one another up with the gifts that you've given to each one, encouraging each other with the promises of your word. Lord, we pray that you would be with our consistory and with our council as they meet tomorrow. Enable them to have the wisdom they need to deal with the needs of your people. Encourage and strengthen them, Lord, and use the decisions that they make and the discussions that they have to build up your people and to expand the proclamation of your word. Father, we pray that you would bless your church in every place where it gathers, that your people might be built up and strengthened, that your name might be glorified, that those who have not yet turned to you 
might hear the gospel and live. Father, we thank you for the freedom that you've given us in this land, that we can worship you without fear and with openness. And thank you for those friends and neighbors and loved ones of ours who have risen to the call to defend that freedom. Standing to bear the sword on your behalf as your servants, as part of the magistrate set over this land. Father, we know that many of those who have served suffer from ailments both physical and emotional and even spiritual. Father, we pray that you would provide the comfort and the healing that they need. And that you would give us the ability to minister to those in our midst who stand in need. Grant that your gospel might give them a freedom that no geopolitical power could ever, uh, could ever bring. And that they might know the peace that your spirit and your gospel provide. And Father, we pray that you would cause us to embrace that peace and to delight in it. Bless the proclamation of your word this day, that it might go forth with power and with truth. Cause us to delight in every opportunity to learn from you and to encourage one another. Father, we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we prepare to look to, um, to God's word from Genesis, uh, let's stand and sing. We're going to sing a rendering of Psalm 6, which we find in Selection 9 from our Psalter hymnal. Selection 9, we'll sing all the stanzas.
Well, our scripture reading is Genesis 3. Um, We're going to read the first 21 verses of Genesis 3. And um, this is actually the start of a series. Um, I'll explain the series in a minute, but I'd like to read the text first. You'll recall that Genesis 1 and 2 describe the creation of everything and then specifically the creation and and coronation of sorts of man. Um, Genesis 2 demonstrating in particular how God put Adam in the garden, giving him charge over the whole world, but also the calling to tend and uphold the garden. Gave him all the fruit of the trees and the plants of the field for food, but gave him one command. You shall not eat the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day that you eat of it you will surely die. And then he gave him opportunity to see all the animals that God had made, naming them and thereby exercising dominion over them, showing that he was sovereign over them. But for Adam, a suitable helper was not found, and so God created the woman, Eve. And then, God, or then Adam said this, At last, is flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. And he took the woman as his wife, and the two were one flesh. And then we read in chapter 3, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden." But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree, of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. 
In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Congregation of God beloved in Christ, as hard as it is to believe, especially on a beautiful sunny day like this, our year is drawing to a close. The change of the time, our clocks, the leaves that fill our yards, the chill of the morning air all testify to the fact that winter is coming. And one of the blessings that we enjoy each winter in that season which with the falling of the leaves, with the barrenness of the landscape, speaks so ominously of death, is that we're able to stop and celebrate God's gift of life in sending His Son. And so as we begin thinking again of the birth of Christ and of Christmas, we do well to remember that not only did Jesus come to give us life, He also came to give us belonging. He also came to give us adoption. He came to give us membership in a family, the family of God. Most of us, our family line is not Jewish, but Gentile. By nature, we are separate from the family of promise, the family chosen by God. And yet the Lord, through Christ, grafts us into Abraham's family tree. And that's a glorious gift. That means that we become part of that family that God chose from among all of mankind. We become heirs of Abraham's blessed promise that God would bless him and his offspring after him. And that God would provide for him a land of great promise. Not just Palestine, that was a foreshadowing of something something infinitely greater. But the land of the new heavens and the new earth. We have become heirs of the writings of the prophets. Which reveal who God is and what he's done and what his will for us is. We have become recipients of the promise that comes to all of Abraham's family. That we will live forever in communion with God. That is amazing. That is glorious. That is wonderful. And it is not just spiritual. Two of the Gospels, Matthew and Luke, include in their early pages genealogies. Reminding us of the human family from which Jesus was descended. Now there's reasons why those Gospels testify to that. The first is to demonstrate that Jesus really is one of us. He's a man. Flesh and blood. But the second is to teach us that God has made us to be part of a real family. That has a real history. That descends through the generations. That's worth remembering. It's worth pondering what God has been doing as He raised up not only His Son, but the family from which He was born and into which He grafts His people. And so as we draw near to Christmas, we're going to consider a part of that family. 
Specifically, we're going to consider some of the mothers from whom Jesus, as a man, was descended. In part because we often think of the men. We think of the men of the Bible. We think of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and Aaron and David and Solomon. We think of these great men like Ezra and Nehemiah and Daniel. We think of the prophets, Ezekiel and Hosea and Micah. And laboring in the background. Often all but unnoticed are these women. And yet, God used these women. Highlighted, in fact, these women, which was entirely countercultural for the ages in which they lived, as the forerunners of his son, as the seedbed out of which the tree of life would grow. So we need to recognize how God took these humble servants of his and used them to bring forth his son. But we also need to recognize that each one of these was highlighted for particular reasons. They teach us some things about ourselves. They teach us some things about their great, 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 great grandson who was to come, who would save us. So between now and Christmas, we intend in our morning services to consider these mothers, some of the mothers of Christ in his earthly line. And we're going to look first this morning at Eve, the first mother. Eve has a lot to teach us. And quite honestly, quite a bit of it is humbling. God reveals Eve as the first mother of Christ, and he reveals her first of all as the mother who assisted the enemy in prompting man's sin. The one who assisted the enemy in prompting man's sin. That's a horrible way to remember the first mother of our Savior, isn't it? But God's word is nothing if not brutally honest about the character of God's people. It's not one of those flattering biographies that smooths over all of the rough patches and makes them look like, like people who have no flaws, no failures, no faults at all. It shows us the people of God with all of their warts and all of their sins and all of their failures, and Eve was no exception. What it reveals about Eve, especially at the start, is incredibly tragic. But we need to see that. Because unless we see the tragedy, unless we see the depths, we can't appreciate the heights of God's grace toward Eve and toward us. Looking at our text from Genesis 3, we're focusing on where God spoke to Adam and Eve after they had committed sin. He comes to them, the text says, in the evening hours, and they hid. They were too ashamed. To show their faces to God. Ashamed of their nakedness. God pursues them. Confronts his rebellious image bearers. Verse 11. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Now they're caught. They've been discovered. 
But rather than humble themselves and confess, what do they do? Kids, it's an impulse that you know, isn't it? They point the finger. They blame. He says to Adam, what have you done? And Adam, first words out of his mouth, the woman. The woman throws her under the bus. The woman whom you gave me. Boldly. He implies that, you know, this is all really God's fault because God's the one who gave the woman and the woman's the one who led him into sin. How evil that is. How contrary to Adam's calling to be a leader and a servant of his wife. And yet, and yet there's truth to it. Because it was the woman who played an extensive role in leading him into sin. She took the first steps. In fact, verses 1 through 6 of this chapter are all about Eve. All about how she gave ear to the serpent. She chose. She decided. She acted right up until she gives the fruit to Adam. And in what it shows of her, it shows that she dared to act as judge. Judging God, judging His Word, determining not only whether she would obey, but whether He was being truthful in what He said. Now understand, this doesn't in any way absolve Adam of his guilt. It was Adam whom God made head of the human race. Adam was given authority over the garden and understanding of the command. He was given headship over his wife and responsibility for all of mankind that would follow. And Adam was entirely wrong. The text says he was with her. He should have silenced the serpent, taught his wife, and protected her from the influence of the evil one. That's what he should have done. He was entirely at fault and guilty. But so was Eve. Adam is speaking the truth. Shamefully so, but he's speaking the truth. Eve was the first one to give in to Satan's temptation. She assisted the enemy in prompting Adam's sin. However, Eve is also willing to play the blame game. Verse 13, the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Well, that makes it all better, doesn't it? I mean, the serpent lied to her. How could she know? And again, what she says is true. The serpent lied and she was deceived. But that omits a very significant element of the story. And that is that Eve believed the serpent rather than God. She chose to believe the serpent over against believing Almighty God. Decided, in fact, in her heart that it was okay to question God. Understand, that is the case absolutely every time we sin or we doubt God's word. Every time, young people hear this, every time you give ear to a teacher or a professor who casts doubt on God's word, every time you give credence to some TikTok or video that calls into question the truth of any aspect of Scripture, any time 
You look at some temptation that you know to be a temptation to sin and you question whether it really is wrong. What you're doing is kicking God off the throne or attempting to and saying, I have the right to choose. I have the right to judge whether God is true or not. That's wicked rebellion, isn't it? He's the one who made you. He's the one who gave you absolutely every gift you have. He gave you life. He gave you every moment you've existed. He gave you your family. He gives you your health. Do you dare to question him? That's what she did. The woman was indeed deceived, but the deception came only after she already entered into the rebellion of daring to judge God. Now, why does that matter? Why does it matter that she played this role in leading Adam into sin? What difference does it make whether Satan acted alone or whether he was assisted by Eve? After all, she wasn't the head of mankind. Adam was. So you see, what Eve did matters. Again, because we can only appreciate the heights of God's grace when we see the depths of the darkness into which man has plunged himself. Eve was not the head of mankind. That was Adam. But that doesn't mean that Eve was without significance. She was given to help and to support Adam. But instead, she chose to undermine him and to betray him. She helped our first father, but she helped him to rebel against God and to plunge all of mankind into ruin. She chose to be the antithesis, the absolute opposite of what woman was created to be. And we, her descendants, need to understand that because only then can we recognize the justice of God's initial response and again, the grace of his ultimate response. The first thing we see is the justice of his initial response. Eve was quickly shown that her sin would carry a hefty price tag. And she saw that immediately in her fear of meeting God. Before this, and we don't know how long it was between man's creation, Eve's formation, and the fall. We tend to read it as though it all happened in the course of a day or two, but... It could have been years. We have no idea. But up until that time, they had no fear. They were naked and they had no shame because they had nothing to hide. They had nothing to worry about. You ever experienced that? Where suddenly fear and worry enter in because you know you've done something wrong and you're pretty sure you covered it up, but then your boss comes in or then your, your parents come in and you wonder, did I forget something? Will they see something? Will they recognize the guilt on my face? It's a terrible feeling. And that's what Adam and Eve were feeling when they heard God walking in the garden. That fear told them something had changed. That impulse to hide demonstrated that their fellowship with God had been broken. No longer were they able to walk and talk with Him in the cool of the garden. No longer could they be open before Him, hiding nothing. And then God confronts them. And that initial estimate of sin's cost rose dramatically. 
As God listened to their excuses, his wrath began to grow. Starting with the serpent, he began to pronounce judgment on these rebellious creatures. And in verse 16, Eve learned that she would endure the curse that would reveal sin's suffering. That's our second point. That she would endure the curse that would reveal sin's suffering. Now, in some ways, the curse against Eve in Genesis 3 is the least of the three curses spoken. After all, the serpent receives both physical humiliation and a death sentence. Adam himself receives a death sentence and the news that his sin would plunge all of creation into misery. Compared to that, the curse Eve receives is less, but it's still a curse from God, and there's no such thing as a curse from God that is easy, right? There's two real aspects to the curse God speaks against Eve. The first aspect is distress. Verse 16 says that God would increase the woman's pain. But when you're translating between two languages, there's often, it's often the case that you encounter a word that can't be encompassed by another word in the target language. And this is one of those words. Pain doesn't do it justice. Misery. Absolute discomfort, no. Absolute torment. Is the, it's, it's not just a physical pain like when you cut yourself. It's a torment, a distress, a struggle that she would endure. And more, a literal rendering of verse 16. You see how it's rendered in your, in your pew Bible. I will multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. But a literal rendering is, I will surely multiply your sorrow and your conception. You understand he's saying two different things there, your sorrow or your distress or your pain and your conception. In other words, the pain, the suffering is not limited to childbirth. He's saying that her life would be marked with distress. It would climax in childbirth and that is a deep shame because by God's design, Childbirth was to be a crowning privilege of woman. She was the one, part of their their calling as mankind was to fill the earth and subdue it, right? And she would have the privilege that her husband couldn't touch. She would have the privilege of being the one through whom the world would be filled. What a glory. What a beautiful thing. But now, that glorious aspect of her calling would be marked by distress, would be filled with pain. Not that alone, the rest of her life also would, she would endure struggles. Ladies, you see that. You see how far too often women are mistreated, marginalized, ignored. And how, because their emotions are often near the surface, by God's design, when they see the rebellious choices of those whom they love, when they see the hurt and the pain that those whom they love 
suffer. They suffer distress. So distress would fill their life and it would climax in bringing forth children. So much so that they would probably want to limit that. But God not only multiplies her distress, but also her conception. So while she might want to limit the bringing forth of children, to limit her distress, God would make it much easier. Not for everyone. We live in a broken world. But he would make it very difficult for women in general to avoid this distress. And beyond this suffering of distress, she would experience a suffering of desire. Verse 15 says very literally, and this is reflected in the margin of your pew Bible, your desire shall be contrary to your husband. Not just for your husband, because that's not a bad thing that you desire your husband. That's actually a good thing. That's the way it should be. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband. We know that that's the way it should be rendered because that same grammatical structure is used elsewhere, including in chapter 4, where God says to Cain concerning sin, its desire is for you or contrary to you, and you shall master it, or you must master it. Of course, Cain didn't. But that... That's the construct used here. What he's saying is that Adam is to be the head, but her desire would be contrary to his desires, to his intentions, to his purposes. Rather than being his helper, suited to him, she would use her suitability, she would use her gifts to fight against him. And he, rather than leading her with gentle service, would master her, would rule her. One commentator summarizes, to love and to cherish suddenly became to desire and to dominate. So ultimately, verse 16 tells us that the curse of sin has corrupted this good, this beautiful relationship that God created. God designed our bodies and God designed marriage to be good things that would fill life with joy. But Eve sought the one pleasure he had forbidden. And as a consequence, women throughout history have found their bodies and their lives racked with distress. God intended childbearing to be a crown that women could wear with great joy. But now it will be painful and hard. So much so that even her descendants would want to limit how many children they bring forth. But God would frustrate that plan. God also intended the man and the woman to live together in marital harmony. The man leading her and she sweetly following. But now she would oppose him and he would crush her. And there would be, there would be warfare in the place that should be a paragon of peace. This is the curse which revealed sin's suffering. And it's a tragedy that every single one of us knows intimately. Certainly the women among us feel it. You experience that distress as you see the pain that sin brings, not just to your life, but to the lives of those whom you love. As you experience the pain and the struggle, not just emotionally, but even physically. But also as you experience that brokenness in a relationship that should be absolutely harmonious. We all feel that. 
Men, you feel that, don't you? My, uh, one of my pastoral mentors, when he teaches pre-marriage counseling, he has a session called How to Fight with Your Wife. Because it's not a question of whether we will have disagreements. That's the fruit of the curse. The question is, will we now handle it as Christians in a godly manner? Because we're going to have disputes. That's part of the curse. How terrible. However, not all of Genesis 3 is bad news. Because after all, she is Eve, mother of all living. And as mother of all the living, she also accepted the promise that provided man's Savior. And that's the final point and the glorious point of this text. Now we see that in verses 15 and 20. Verse 15 relates God's curse against the serpent, which is the form in which Satan acted. Like Eve's, the serpent's curse had two parts. The first part was physical. The serpent, because that's the form in which Satan was acting, the serpent would now crawl upon its belly. I've often wondered what he looked like when he had legs. Had to be fascinating and probably just a little bit terrifying. But suddenly he didn't. Matter of fact, verse 15 says that he would now, the, the serpent would now literally eat dust. Being physically humbled, physically shamed, to demonstrate the shame and the humbling that Satan, who acted in his form, deserves. Now understand, that's just half of the curse. The bigger part, the far more substantial part, is what we see right after that. He says, I will put enmity. What is enmity? Enmity is hatred, hostility. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. God will put hatred between not just the serpent, but Satan who acted in his form and the woman. And between Satan's offspring and the offspring of the woman. Is that, is that correct to call or to say that God has instilled hatred. Well, it is. If we understand the hatred that is described there, it's not that all hatred is bad. This is a hatred of that which rebels against God. That, this is a hatred of that which, which fights against God and His ways. A little later, we're going to sing Psalm 139. And in Psalm 139, we'll sing the psalmist's confession. Do I not hate your haters, Lord? Those fighting you I have abhorred. I hate them almost fervently and count them as my enemies. That's God's word. And it calls us to vow that we will hate those who hate God, that we will hate his enemies. And that is Satan and those who are born of him. Because they long for destruction, they long for death, they long for the overthrow of God, which we know to be impossible, but which still brings dishonor upon Him. And that enmity, that hostility will extend to her offspring. Those who belong to Satan naturally will hate and love, or hate all who love God. But God will put hostility in His people towards Satan. 
And that, my friends, is the first hint of hope. Because God is beginning to speak of Eve as His. As one who is on His side. And that means that there will be reconciliation. There will be redemption. He will give her an enmity against Satan that is active and that eventually will become deadly. The last bit of verse 15 uses a verb twice that means to break or to bruise or to crush. It's a term of violence, a term of destruction. What you would use to to describe a building that was whole and has been reduced to rubble. That's what will result from this enmity. The woman's offspring, moved by that enmity, will crush the head of the serpent. Now understand, that's not what Eve would do. That's what her offspring would do. And it's important to note that it's a singular verb and a singular noun. Her son, that's Christ, will crush the head of Satan who led us into sin. Her offspring, the son of the woman, will end that rebellion which Satan began. But he will not escape unscathed. Because as he goes to crush the head of the serpent of Satan, he himself will be struck in the heel like a man seeking to end the life of a snake who gets struck by its poison, its fangs. He may not die from it, but he will certainly suffer. Well, Jesus would die. He would go all the way to the grave. He would remain there for three days, but yet he would rise up in triumph. He would rise up in victory. But what we need to see is that that destruction of the evil one, that overcoming of the curse, it would come at a cost. It would not end him, but he would suffer deeply. Folks, understand well, this is the first proclamation of the gospel. It's the story of Christ's triumph. But amazingly, wonderfully, graciously, his triumph comes through the line of the one who began the rebellion. Isn't that amazing? The one who led our first father, our head, our office bearer into sin. The one who ushered man into the tomb. The Savior would come from her womb. That is amazing. That should lead us to rejoice and that should give us great comfort. Why? Because there are times... When you look at your sin and you look at the misery that you have, pro- have provoked. And you think, how could God ever love the likes of me? How could he ever restore me? And then we look at Eve. The first one to stand in judgment against God. The one who took that fruit in her hand and judged contrary to God's word that it was good who took a bite and gave it to Adam and thereby plunged all of us into sin and death and destruction. If God could save her, if God could pour out His grace upon her, if God could use her as the vessel through whom the Savior would come, you haven't any need to worry. 
any need to doubt that His grace can triumph over every one of your sins, every one of your rebellions, every one of your shameful deeds. His grace is greater. So we can be absolutely confident. That doesn't mean that we take our sins lightly, that we brush them off as though they're nothing. They're not. They're rebellion against the King of kings and the Lord of lords. They deserve destruction. But God's grace is even greater. Jesus has come. He was indeed struck on the heel. He was placed in the grave, in fact, but not before He declared it is accomplished. The head of the serpent was crushed. We don't see it yet. But very soon, very soon we will see the fullness of the victory. And when we do, we will be able to see absolute reconciliation. Do you notice the last thing that we read? The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. It's the first animal death recorded in Scripture. God killed a living being. Why? To cover their nakedness, to cover their shame. Again, we see Christ. Christ who died so that we could live. Christ who was destroyed so that we could be covered with His satisfaction and righteousness and holiness. And that we could live before God as though we had never sinned nor been a sinner, as though we had been as perfectly righteous as God was righteous for us. That is how God turned our first mother's sin and replaced her shame with glory. And brothers and sisters, that glory belongs to each one of us who trusts in that Son. May we trust in Him wholeheartedly and may we never doubt that His grace is great enough to cover our every last sin. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you. You have done in Eve's greater son what we could never have done for ourselves. You crushed the serpent's head. You brought an end to the curse that flowed from that first rebellion. And you have provided for us reconciliation and life. May we embrace that, Lord, by your strength and your power. And may we be used, each of us, as children in your family, to bring glory and honor from now and unto eternity to you, our Heavenly Father. We pray it in the name of Jesus, our elder brother and Savior. Amen. Beloved, in response... Let us acknowledge that God does, in fact, know us better than we know ourselves. And yet He loves us. He cherishes us and He uses us to His ends. We do that by singing from Selection B of Psalm 139. We'll sing stanzas 1 and then 8 through 11. 1 and 8 through 11 of 139B.
Let us pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you that you have given us life and all things pertaining to life, both spiritually and physically. We give you now in gratitude our tithes and our offerings. Receive them, we pray, as gifts of faith and cause them to be used in ways that bring honor to you. Father, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Our offering song this morning is Mary's song, number 332 from our Psalter hymnal, My Soul Doth Magnify the Lord.
Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.